Welcome back to the Sharpen Podcast, a podcast aimed at minimizing future outdoor accidents by way of storytelling. Real people sharing real stories. I'm Ashley Soppy, the creator and producer of this show. And I have a YouTube channel. And while I'm telling you about it, please like and subscribe to it right now. That way you will always know when a new video comes out. Head on over to youtube.com and type in the sharp end in the search bar. Like, subscribe, it's that easy. Thank you to Rocky Talkies for presenting this podcast. Rocky Talkies are backcountry radios designed by a small team of climbers in Denver. These radios are extremely lightweight, durable, and they come with a fully rated ultralight Mamu carabiner. They also have impressive battery life and solid range. These radios are great for all kinds of things. Backcountry skiing, snow machining, hiking, taking your kid to the mall, long road trips in a caravan, scouting, extreme berry picking, you name it. If you like discounts, get 10% off by going to rockytalkie.com slash sharpend. This is the very first episode out of 94 episodes of the lifespan of this podcast that I have featured an international story. I have limited my submissions to North America, Canada, and Mexico because I already have too many submissions as it is. This is a special episode because I've gone international. Today I interview a man named Michael who talks about his experience in Nepal in April of 2023, just a couple months ago. The story takes place on the striking 6,812 meter mountain, Ama de Blom, and he shares a ton of lessons learned. I hope you enjoy. So I'm Michael, uh, Michael Hobbicht. I'm a climber for about 30 years. Um, and I started in, uh, on Shasta. I got guided. I was called to the mountains and I must go. So I got guided in Shasta when I was in college. And then my next experience was a gym, uh, probably one of the first gyms in the U S uh, mission cliffs it was uh, mid, mid to late nineties, maybe like 94, 95. Um, and uh, I've just been climbing ever since. I've had lots of interruptions. I had to go to back to school. I've had kids. So I always called myself a very experienced climber, just not a very good climber. I've been, yeah. I've been struggling at the 5.11 range for about 30 years. So that's, that's where I'm stuck. And where do you live? I live in South Lake Tahoe. Um, my wife and I met as climbing guides, and we decided we wanted to move to um, a mountain town and be still close to family in San Jose and the Bay Area. Um, so South Lake Tahoe was a great place to land, close to a international airport, very close to climbing. Lover's Leap is 15, 20 minutes away. Um, so we, we just get out and play as much as possible. I turned 50 this year, and I wanted to give myself a big trip. And I decided to do uh, Ama de Blom in Nepal. I've done some mountaineering. Oh. I have, uh, I've been up Rainier, I did Denali with a group of friends, uh, unguided, and uh, that was pre-COVID, and COVID shut down my trip planning for about two years, and I finally got back around and decided to do a trip. I had planned to go with a partner, um, and I wanted to be as, as independent as possible. Unfortunately, my partner hurt himself a couple of months before the trip and said he wouldn't be ready, so I said, well, I'll just do it solo. Ama de Blom is about uh, 20 miles south of Everest, and it's uh, 6,800 meters approximately, and it's just a gorgeous thumb sticking out. Everybody has trekked past it, has said that's a beautiful mountain, and it really calls. Um, and the easiest way up is a, uh, a fixed line route um, on the sort of south buttress area, and uh takes 30 days to acclimatize and to get up this mountain. So I took off for 30 days and, and uh, did my best to get up there. I never quite summited. Um, and I just had no idea what to expect. I'd never been to Nepal. I had never been to Kathmandu. It is an amazing place. I'm a very um, oh, uh, untrusting traveler. I've been robbed in the past, and I was very skeptical about uh, signing up for what's called base camp services. I signed up with a company um, called Seven Summits uh, to get me to the base camp, and they would feed and house me from Kathmandu to the base camp. And after that, I was on my own. So camp one and camp two. That helps with the logistics oh, quite a bit. Oh, it was great. And I, I, 
I landed. I didn't have cell service. I didn't want to turn my phone on. All I had was Wi-Fi, but there's no Wi-Fi in the uh, baggage claim area in uh, Nepal. And so I, I just walked out and they had a picture of me from my WhatsApp profile uh, in a ski helmet. And the guy recognized me uh, wearing a ski helmet and goggles. Wow. And he's like, that must be you. And I was like, oh, you guys are great. They were really wonderful. Um, spent about two days in the city and then flew in. Wait, so real, just pause for one second. What, when oh, was this? Oh, this is uh, what month? April 2023. So approximately April 15th to May 15th, 2023. Okay, so this, so we're, it's, it's July 18th right now. So only, that was only a couple, couple months, months ago. ago. Um, it's the slightly wetter season for Ama de Blom. Apparently it's much better in the fall season, like October, November. Um, and that'll be part of my story is it, it snowed almost every day. And uh, the base camp managers were actually quite shocked. They said they'd never seen it snow every day um, in April. So we were looking for a weather window uh, for much of my time I spent alone. And that, that's an interesting thing to do is to go alone and uh, be the only person at base camp for a couple days with nobody who speaks English. And you're just really uh, grinding out the books. I, I read 11 books in 30 days. <laughs> Waiting out. <Wow>. Later. <laughs> I'm sure many people can relate to that. <laughs> so I, uh, it, you land in Nepal, uh, you fly to a little airport called Lukla. Um, and then it's a, like a four day trek in, um, because you land at 9,000 feet, um, and you hike horizontally for a day, then you hike vertically and you get to Namche Bazaar, which is about 14,000 feet. Uh, please forgive me. I'm going to use feet mostly for this, uh, even though meters, meters would be the appropriate. If you're not even a climber, uh, spending a couple days in Namche Bazaar is just a gorgeous experience. And I highly recommend it. A really beautiful place to hang out. There's 20,000, 25,000 foot peaks all around. And they're, they're just sort of the, you know, they're, they're sacred peaks to the locals, but to the climbers, they're like, nah, we don't climb that. It's, it's not worth it. Um, Cause it's not tall enough and it's not important enough, but there's, you know, things that are taller than all of the Americas just sitting there essentially unclimbed all the time. Um, and then you trek in uh, to base camp after Namche, and base camp is about 15,000 feet. Um, and unfortunately, I was sick as a dog uh, just traveling. It's, it was like 36 hours in a plane in airports. Um, so I had a flu-like illness for like the first four days. Um, I trekked in That's with a couple hard. other guys, uh, one from Canada, one from uh, South Korea. And uh, my base camp services, we split up. Um, and they went to go do an acclimatizing peak because they were being fully guided. And I went straight to um, base camp and I just parked it for like five days, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, it's it's being solo is a really unique experience because you you don't have anybody to bounce ideas off of. of you know, how do you feel? What do you feel about this? What are your vibes? Are you getting the, you know, turn around tail between your legs vibe? Or are you Are you still good to go? And so you have to deal with that all internally. Um, believe it or not, there's actually Wi-Fi at base camp, but only intermittently. So uh, I used my Garmin uh, inReach, um, would text my wife, and she would constantly remind me, you know, no, you got 30 days. You're only on day seven. Just keep it, keep, keep trucking, <laughs> keep trucking. Um, and eventually I did some acclimatizing hikes, got up to 19,000 feet to camp one, um, but it was really unique because it's supposed to be uh, a, a dirt trek and some scrambling, but it's all covered in 10 inches of snow and it's, you know, snowing two inches to six inches every day. Um, and you're just waiting for this weather window and you're just plodding along and you're supposed to be wearing, you know, approach shoes to get to camp one. But I ended up in, in uh, big boots. Yeah. Yeah. Boots. yeah. Um, just making it more painful and slow. And so you acclimatize, you go up, you come back down. I, I spent a night up there. I found out that uh, there was lots of empty tents. What they do is they just set up the tents for the season and all the guide companies talk to each other and say, hey, we're sending up three people. You can use our tent. We're sending up five people. You can use their tents. And so I talked to my base camp manager and I said, hey, I, I brought my own tent along. Do I really need it? And they said, no, you can use one of our tents. So, um, and there's lots of, lots of detritus in these tents there, you know, there's used canisters and, 
you know, leftover food. Uh, there's no bears. Um, I saw a marmot light creature. I don't know what he was, but there's lots of birds. Uh, birds peck the heck out of all the stuff that was left over in the tent. So it wasn't, wasn't unpleasant, but it was not the best camping experience in the world. And uh, these tents are perched on this rock ridge that are, it's just mind boggling. And, you know, it, it, 10 feet in any direction and you're falling to your death. Um, and they're super uncomfortable because there's no flat spots. The tents are just on rocks and some of those rocks, you know, you get a pebble in your back in the middle of the night. You're like, that's annoying. I'm talking about, you know, shoe sized rocks underneath you. And so you're just sleeping in a position just to avoid that, uh, that rock all night. Um, but I had a good experience going up and coming back down. Um, I was now acclimatized and I'm resting back at base camp. Um, there was actually a rescue that was going on while I was at base camp. And unbeknownst to me, it was one of, uh, one of the guys that I had trekked in with had gotten haste um, and had been hallucinating for two days. Um, and, and haste, just for all the listeners, is high, al- geez, high altitude cerebral edema. Cerebral yeah, edema. So. Yeah. So that's your brain. So your brain swells. And when your brain swells, it the swelling makes it, essentially you lose you lose your motor function. You lose all kinds of things. You get dizzy. You get, um, you, you get confused. Um, so that, that can be really, really scary. And you, you can die pretty quickly with haste unless you descend rapidly, right? So they tried to descend, but like I said, there was weather every day. And uh, they were trying to get a helicopter to do what's called a long line rescue, where they drop a rope from the helicopter and pluck them off the mountain. But the weather was too bad. And so he spent, uh, I think, two days at Camp 2 and a day at Camp 1 actually recovering um, because the lower you go, the less altitude illness you have. And so he actually recovered fully and was able to hike himself down, but he had no recollection of the events of about three days. Um, He thought that uh, he was being manhandled by his guides when he was actually being carried he thought that they were trying to escort him into a temple so they could worship with him, but they were just trying to tuck him into a sleeping bag. You know, he's really out of his mind for a couple of days. Hallucinating. hallucinating. Yeah. And uh, so that always puts your mindset in like, a, oh, God, I, I don't even have a, a, a Sherpa guide who can help me. And here I am still trying to go up solo. And uh, I have a lot of experience with altitude in terms of going up some big peaks, but I also have a lot of experience with medicine. I'm actually an emergency physician and I've studied high altitude medicine through the Wilderness Medical Society and actually teach for them in a program called the Diploma in Mountain Medicine. So I felt like I I had a good handle on recognizing symptoms. However, once once you've sort of crossed over into the hallucinating, you're, you're no longer yourself and you can't help yourself. So that was actually my biggest fear going up there solo. I wasn't afraid of falling. I wasn't afraid of the rope work. I was afraid of getting sick at altitude. Um, so I was very careful about my acclimatization um, and went up and down the mountain several times before I decided to push on to camp two. But I wanted to be around other climbers. I didn't want to be up there all alone. I didn't mind taking care of myself. I just didn't want to be up there solo. So I found a group that was going up and I introduced myself to a a lovely couple from uh, Denmark who were going up and they were being guided. They each had their own Sherpa guide. Um, And I found another guy who was, I believe, from Norway who was going up solo, much like I was. And um, there was a guy from Australia who was going up, but he didn't quite make it even to Camp 1. He spent one night at Camp 1 and bailed, or Camp 2, sorry, and bailed. And um, two ladies from, uh, one was from Romania and the other was from Thailand. And the wow, it, was, it was amazing. Yeah, it was very international. <laughs> um, the yeah. couple from Denmark, what he was, they were both physicians. He was uh, training um, and about to start his residency in the Navy. And she was a full physician, but she was originally from the UK. Um, so they both spoke fluent English and she had a a lovely uh, English accent and uh, also spoke Dutch fluently. And we played a lot of games waiting out weather together. They were just great people. And I actually just found out, they just emailed me and said, um, they just got engaged uh, like this week um, because I had said, hey, 
this girl's going up a mountain with you and she is tolerating a lot of stuff for your dreams. Um, Bart, it was Bart's dream to climb this mountain. And he's like, I gotta think about that. And she wrote me and said, well, it turns out he, uh, he listened to you and decided I was a keeper. <laughs> oh. that, that well, hopefully you get an invitation oh, to the wedding. <laughs> um, and so we, we basically all left uh, base camp on the same day and got to camp one. Um, and it was snowing as just per the normal. And uh, we spent the night and decided to wait and to see if there was a weather window. And a weather window was definitely coming, but it was going to snow the next day. So what we decided to do was to climb through the snowstorm to Camp 2 um, and make it to Camp 2 and wait out the snowstorm and see if we had time to go uh, immediately that night or wait a whole day. And so there's now 10 inches of fresh snow on a, a mostly horizontal trek at about 20,000 feet across a knife edge ridge for, oh, it's probably a mile and a half or so. And it's all roped. It's all fixed ropes. Um, and so you're in your big mountaineering boots. Uh, it's all fixed ropes. You're actually guessing what rope is the good rope because there's usually about three or four ropes on every traverse. Um, some of them are like hardware store ropes and some of them are clearly climbing ropes. Um, and sometimes you only have the hardware store rope to use and sometimes it's a nice climbing rope. Sometimes you get to the end of the... Why would you only have the one... Like, why would you only be able to use the hardware one instead of Oh, the because that's that's all that was actually there. So not every pitch had multiple ropes. Okay. So some of these horizontal pitches okay. only had a, a fixed rope that was... Um, it wasn't a kern mantle. It was a braided, twisted braided rope. So a three-strand braided rope like you would see from the hardware store um, or like a dock line for, for a boat. Um, so a lot of this was, you know, not climbing specific, a lot of this hardware that I saw, uh, especially the, the ropes. Um, cause it makes you a little nervous. You're like, Oh, what am I, what am I actually holding my life onto? Um, and some of the anchors were, you know, beautiful three point anchors with a, a, you know, like a glue in bolt, uh, that's meant for climbing. And some of them were solo ice screws that were half hanging out um and that's it just one ice screw which is nerve-wracking um and i conferred with all the the guides and all their clients and i said how would you like me to fit into your group and one of the lead guides said why don't you go first and break trail for half the day um, in this fresh 10 inches of snow you have to you know make a trail there's there's no way to get through without literally pulling the ropes out of the ice sliding your ascender or jumar along so that it's a one-way ascension device it goes up the rope but won't come back down so hopefully it catches you if you fall and you slide your ropes along break the ice up and you make trails with your feet um and i was like wow that's going to be a lot of work so I'll, I'll do it no problem um and uh, a halfway mark you know we'll, we'll trade places uh, it took me about four or five hours to get to camp two and it took all the clients over 11 hours to get there so I, uh, I left bright and early and I made it there by myself and I never saw them again for 11 hours. So I made wow. it to camp two and I, I picked a tent and just hung out. It was really beautiful. It was snowing off and on. Um, there's a, a I, I can't name the phenomenon, but you, you cast a shadow of yourself into the clouds when you're up at altitude. Um, so the sun is setting and I'm casting an infinitely long shadow into the clouds. And it's just a really gorgeous phenomenon. And you can only really get it on a mountain peak. Um, it has to be a cloudy mountain peak and your shadow goes on infinitely into the distance. It's really beautiful. Um, yeah, and then there's like a sun dog rainbow around me uh, in, the, in the photo. It's really gorgeous. So I was really happy to. Oh, I have that yeah, photo. I, I sent it to you. I have yeah. that. So I'll make sure that I share that. Yeah. Yep. Um, really gorgeous place to hang out. And uh, the first person to come up, um, and this should have been a, a sign of trouble to come, was uh, the Australian gentleman came up by himself. He was solo, uh, but he had been guided and he was not the fastest hiker. And I was a little curious why he was um, alone. And it turns out that his uh, Sherpa guide had decided to help some of the other clients um, do these traverses. There is actually like a five, nine vertical pitch. That's supposed to be beautiful climbing. I would love to have climbed it, but because I was in big boots, um, you end up, uh, ascending it with a, a, a Jumar more than climbing it. Um, 
And he was the first to arrive. And about an hour later, um, some other clients and, and guides roll in. And we all pick our tents. I ended up with uh, the Australian in a sharing a tent. Um, these tents are, you know, there's only about six tents there for about a dozen of us. Um, so we all have to share. And um, it turns out the weather was too bad to go on the next day. So we, we decided to wait it out uh, a whole day. Normally, the process is you go um, immediately that night. Um, at about 11 o'clock at night, but two things. One, none of the clients were ready for it because it had taken them 11 hours to do what should have been a five or six hour uh, traverse. Um, and two, it was, it was still bad weather. And I think I made a little bit of a mistake by agreeing and saying, hey, I'll wait it out too, because the next day was probably okay weather. I could have gone right away. Um, but I decided to hang out at camp two with everybody else because I didn't want to be totally alone here. I was supposed to be unguided, but I was a little nervous about yeah. being alone. Um, so I waited it out with everybody. Um, I had a terrible night's sleep. Uh, the poor Australian gentleman, with the Australian, yeah, the Australian <laughs> he had, uh, um, what's called the Kumbu cough. Um, everybody coughs all the time. Um, the dry air, the high altitude, um, you just cough nonstop. And uh, I didn't have the heart to tell him, but he needed some tent etiquette lessons as well. He didn't have a pee bottle with him. So he would get up in the middle of the night, just unzip his bag, kneel in the vestibule and pee into the vestibule. So the next morning you have to crawl across Australian piss to make it out of the tent. Um, he didn't sleep well either. His cough was really bad. So he actually decided to, to bail. And now who's left are the, uh, the, Nor the Norwegian, I'm sorry, the Den Denmark couple, um, the Norwegian solo guy, the Romanian lady, and the Thai lady. They're, they're left. And they all have, uh, except for the Norwegian, they all have their own individual um, high altitude guide. Um, and it's uh, a lovely day. We basically boil water all day. Um, and the, the Sherpas discovered my stove. I have a, a really lovely uh, MSR uh, universal, Whisperlite universal with a, uh, a special pot. I think, it's a, I think it's a Primus pot that has um, heat conduction fins on it. And so my pot just blew everybody else's away. So they stole all my stuff and they're boiling water all day long to make you know about a gallon per person. Um, so you gotta make 12 gallons of water for, for all these people to get up the mountain. Um, and because of that, you know, I bonded with some of the guides. They fed me. Um, they made sure I was comfortable. I, I kept telling them I was fine. I had my own stuff, but they insisted on feeding me. So I wasn't going to argue with them. You didn't have your stuff but, anymore because they, they did. Had they your they stuff. took my stuff. <laughs> um, and uh, I, you know, I was happy to share. Um, it's just a, you know, literally very tight knit community. And up there, it's six tenths, about 15 feet apart. They're just really. Um, and there's no place to go. You, you're hanging onto a rope anywhere you go. You walk 10 feet in any direction and you're falling off a cliff. Um, we take a little nap at about 8 p.m. Um, and sleep as much as we can. Um, and we start getting rolling probably around 10, 11 p.m. Um, to start hiking at about 1 a.m. It's a really long process. I don't know if you've ever spent any time in, in extreme cold at extreme altitude, but it's about four or five layers on the bottom and it's about five or six layers on top plus two pairs of gloves, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like an hour process to just get out of your tent, put on everything, strap on crampons and get ready to go. And uh, I'm witnessing some people get ready and some people seem extremely capable and some people seem to require a lot of help. And uh, another sort of warning flag of what was to come, uh, the lady from Thailand, um, had uh, couldn't lace up her own boots, didn't know how to put on her own crampons, and was taking what I described as uh, Instagram shots of her sort of being catered to. Um, and I, it made me nervous. It was really obvious to me that there was uh, an extreme variety of skill levels. And at this point, I, I kind of want to back up a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about my resume in terms of why I felt like I was ready for this to go solo. And I spent years sort of accumulating experience. Um, I got guided when I first started climbing. Um, I took a couple guided classes on how to place gear. I mean, we're talking 
The other solo um, from Norway, uh, I believe his name was Ethan and myself. And so we were now um, uh, moving much faster than the rest of the, the group. And we made it up uh, to Camp 3 area. Um, and Camp 3 is, is not always used. It's actually kind of a dangerous spot. It's been wiped out by avalanches in the past. And we got to Camp 3 and realized that an avalanche had come through. Um, and the ropes got buried into the snow. We were able to find the ropes oh, probably another 100 yards away. They came back out of the snow, and we kept descending. And about two pitches after that, so another, let's say, 400 feet after that, vertically, uh, the ropes just disappeared into the snow again, and they didn't reappear. And it was fairly vertical. It was probably a 70 to 80 degree slope. Um, it's doable with crampons and one axe, um, but with no safety equipment, no ropes ahead of us, it would require ice screws and a lead rope, which we didn't have. And the rope just disappeared into the snow. And we could actually see anchors dangling above us. So we're not even sure that the rope is actually attached to anything other than its own self buried into the snow. Um, so we, we actually quickly descended. Um, and uh, uh, I think the, the guide had a radio to communicate with the other guides um, and uh, tell them to time to turn around. Um, and it was time to turn around because there was you didn't have the equipment to move forward. Like you said, you didn't have ice screws or a rope. Yep. And, and the one rope that was fixed was just totally buried. Yes. So you're like, well, we kind of hit your stopping yeah. point. So we're about 200, 200 meters or so vertically from the top at this point, uh, maybe an hour or two worth of ascending. Um, and uh, we had to stop. We had to turn around. There was just no way to safely go without more equipment. And nobody had uh, two ice axes and a lead rope and ice screws. So... When you got to Camp 3 and you saw that Camp 3 had pr fairly recently been hit by an avalanche, what like did, what were you what were you thinking? Did that freak you out? It, it definitely did. Um, you could tell that the, the debris was a couple of days old because it was windblown. And nobody had been up there for several days because it had been snowing constantly and there was no weather window. So nobody had been up for about four or five days. You could tell that the debris was... I don't know, days old. I'm not an expert, but it was certainly not fresh that night. It had been windblown and scoured. Um, and I, honestly, I rationalized it as, well, that avalanche happened. Hopefully it doesn't happen again. Um, and, and there is some safety to that. You know, there's always hang fire. There's always the possibility of, of more debris coming down. You're obviously in an avalanche prone terrain, but that, that big avalanche that, the wipe, that wiped out the ropes had already come down. So I was probably yeah. better than I would have been five days ago. That was my theory. Nervous, but also relieved. Yeah. You're like, oh, that's that's eye-opening. And also it already yeah. came down. So, um, <laughs> okay. All right, carry on. Sorry to interrupt. I just was thinking about so that. So we, we decided to turn around uh, wisely. Um, I knew at that moment my climb was done. I had thought about quitting several times. Uh, you know, I was sick at first. I was very lonely at some points during this, waiting out weather windows. I'd thought about turning around several times. And um, I was very happy, actually, that it was the mountain that stopped me. It wasn't my decision. It was the mountain's decision. And I was very comfortable that and very satisfied. I had been feeling great. I knew I could make it the rest of the way. I didn't have any effects of altitude illness at all at that point. I was feeling very strong. Um, very capable. And it was purely the mountain that turned around. I don't feel like I failed. I feel like the mountain just said no to me that day. And I was, I was happy with that decision from the mountain. So that, I don't know, that's a very satisfying way to end a climb um, as opposed to, Absolutely. I don't feel like I failed. I just feel like the answer was no today. Um, and so we turned around. It took us about four hours, maybe five hours of climbing to get to this high point. Um, we turned around and we caught up to the people who were still ascending and they had obviously turned around and started descending. And now there's uh, four people catching up to six people and we caught up to them very quickly. Um, it's now, just to give you an idea, we left at say 10 or 11. So it's now three in the morning-ish and um, uh, still pitch black. We're still all using headlamps and we all stopped. Um, 
So just so everybody understands, only one person can descend a rope at a time. Multiple people can ascend a rope at the same time, but only one person can rappel at a time. And so you have to wait for somebody to unweight the rope and clip into the next rope before the next person can go. And it turns out um, uh, two of the climbers had no idea how to rappel. They just didn't know how to rappel. So they had to wait for their guides to hook them up, um, set them up for a rappel, have somebody below them for a safety called a fireman's belay, and have somebody above them to hook them up. Um, and so every rappel um, took 20 minutes per person, approximately. Um, You're bottlenecked. Or totally bottlenecked. Um, I was actually now um, sort of, of the four who had gone up the highest, I was now the first to descend just because I was the fourth to go up. And when you turn around, that's just the way it works out. Um, so now I'm, I'm first to descend. So I'm waiting the least. And um, in order to assist the... Um, the guide for the couple, um, both guides, had decided to go help the other two clients who didn't have any skills. So in order for those clients to have a Sherpa above them and below them, it took a, you know, a two to one ratio. And so the guides for Bart and Claire, that's what, those were their names, Bart and Claire's guides actually left them because um, they were quite capable and went down to assist uh, the lady from Romania and the lady from Thailand who had no skills whatsoever. Um, so they were moving very slow. And now there's four of us with no Sherpas, no radio, um, uh, all descending on our own. And um, we're all quite capable. We're, we all feel very comfortable in this terrain. And uh, it's now taking four hours of sitting on a ridge waiting for to move maybe maybe 200 vertical feet. No, it's a really slow process. And um, Bart got cold. Um, you know, four hours of sitting still on a windy ridge at 21,000, 22,000 feet is dangerous. Um, and it, it's becoming life-threatening uh, how long we had to wait. I still felt good. Um, I was still moving and I completed a rappel and uh, I call up after every repel and tell the person above me, um, uh, off repel. I yell up, off repel. Uh, so the next person knows that they can hook in and start descending the rope. Um, and uh, all I heard back was help. I, I thought that was very odd. Uh, it was, I was, nothing had happened. There was no fall. There was no, you know, uh, clamor of, of falling ice and rocks. It was just help. Um, was it a man or a it was a man's voice? voice. Um, there was there was only two okay. people above me at that time. Uh, it, it was, was Bart. Bart. Yeah. Um, so Bart uh, is yelling help, and I couldn't figure out why uh, it, it, he wouldn't. He was too far away to communicate with. All I could hear was the help. We called up again. We heard help again. I said, "I I got to go back up." Um, so I had to uh, ascend the ropes, um, and. Uh, assess the situation and it takes a long time. When you're at 21,000 feet, you don't just jug up 200 feet of rope in five minutes. It takes 15, 20 minutes. You know, you, you, you take 10 steps, you jug as fast as you can, and then you got to breathe for two minutes. Um, and then you take 10 steps and you jug as fast as you can, and you got to breathe for two minutes. So it probably took me 20 minutes to get back up to him. And the poor guy was, uh, still in his belay device, um, just dangling from the rope above because his hands were too cold to manipulate his locking carabiners. So he couldn't clip in with his leash to the next anchor and he couldn't unclip his uh, uh, belay device. He, he couldn't move the locking uh, mechanism. He couldn't unscrew it. And so he's a little hypothermic. He's a little confused. He starts speaking to me in Dutch, uh, knowing full well we've been hanging out for a week, knowing full well I don't speak any Dutch. Um, so his, his level of consciousness is declining. Yep. He's lost some motor skills so that this is, this is hypothermia. Yeah. So he's in a bad place and his Sherpa is gone and we have no communications. So now it's just, uh, just Bart and I at 21,000 feet and, the uh, uh, the closest Sherpa is probably 600 feet below us. 
and uh, Ethan's below us. He turned out to be a very capable guy, which I was very happy about. Um, and so I hooked him up into a, uh, a rappel rig, a dual rappel rig, where I, I leashed myself to him. And then I uh, had an extender where I belayed us both down, rappelling both people at one time um, and made it back down to Ethan. And Ethan actually had the good idea of saying, hey, why don't I go down? You hook Bart up for the next couple of rappels. You stay here with him, hook him up, and I will be the backup called the fireman's belay from below, which is a much faster way and safer way. Because um, Bart could move. He could walk. He, his feet worked, but he couldn't move his hands. He couldn't clip himself in and out. So all he had to do was walk backwards, um, and we could essentially lower him with a, with a fireman's belay. Um, and that, that worked out really well. So we got about two more rope lengths down that way. And Bart started to recover some motor function, just moving him, um, just getting him going again. He started to recuperate. Um, and at this point, it is now just becoming sunrise. And so we're, you know, we're going from negative 10 to zero, and we're feeling much better about the whole thing. Um, and he's moving he's his mov- body, which yeah. is also he's warming, yeah, warming him up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we made him eat and drink something, um, and got him, got him going again. And, uh, this whole time I'm, you know, he's, he's clearly upset. He, he's angry at the people below us. I'm angry at them too. Um, because they wouldn't, they wouldn't let us pass. They wouldn't pull off to the side. And, uh, they had no idea that an entire rescue had happened above them. You know, it took, this is probably a two to three hour process, and his paid guides just didn't know. Um, and his guide, I think, made a tough decision like, oh, this is dangerous. I'm going to go help the slow people so that we can all move faster. I think that was probably the wrong call in the end, but I understand why he made that call. And um, we finally get back to camp, uh, camp two. Um, it's now full daylight and everybody's feeling much better. We're, we're at a lower altitude. It's much warmer. It's a bright, sunny day. The weather would have been perfect for a summit attempt, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, (laughs) absolutely gorgeous day. Um, and, uh, uh, we all rest for, I don't know, five or six more hours at camp. So we rest until let's say noon, um, and then decide to descend all the way back down to, to base camp, which is a, a long day. Um, and, uh, I guess, I guess Bart had it out with one of the slower of the party and, and actually yelled at her and told her that, you know, you risked my life. Um, he said that he made her cry and there's a, you know, I don't, I don't ever want to scold somebody that, that much, but there was a little tiny bit of me. I was like, good. She needed to learn a lesson that she had actually, you know, put somebody else's life at risk because of her lack of skills. Um. It's good to give feedback for sure. Cause she might not have had any idea. True. You know, she paid for an experience too. And you know, that was, she just happened to be with a group that was faster. Dynamics weren't great for the summit. And I mean, she probably had no idea. She's probably way out of her element. It sounds like. And so she's just so focused on, you know, the, the, the task at hand instead of the group dynamics, the bigger picture. Yeah, you know? no, I, I, I can see all that and I understand it, yeah. but at the same time, you know, that, that, sense of self-responsibility and group responsibility was just, it wasn't there. She had no self-awareness of whether or not she should be in the mountains or not. And while I can fault her to a point, I, you should really fault the people who encouraged her to sign up for it in the first place. And they have a little school where they actually take people up and down a rock. It's probably a 30 foot tall rock down at base camp when they do a little a little jumaring practice and a little repelling practice. And there's no way that she was competent enough um, to actually demonstrate those skills. I, I actually witnessed her the next day trying to get between camp or, or later that afternoon, trying to get between camp one and two. Um, and again, she had two guides literally being manhandled around corners on little horizontal traverses, something that a competent climber would have just, you know, hung on, found a toehold, maybe waited the rope and just pulled themselves around the corner. Mm-hmm. Um, literally carried between, you know, two, two sort of open exposed points, maybe 15 feet, she had to be carried. And that's where I came back to the, the experience of, you know, you know, do you know how to go across a talus field with boots on? You know, if you can't do that, you shouldn't be there. 
And if you've never done that, you shouldn't mm-hmm. be there. Um, and I, and I say boots in particular because it's so different between like a pair of sneakers and a pair of shoes and a pair of boots. And it's, you know, what was. And then a pair of boots with a pair of crampons yeah. on the boots. I mean, that's yeah. also a huge difference. Does this company, um, do they, do they have a skills check? And if you can't pass the skills check, you, you, you can't go up. I mean, it sounds like they do have that boulder down there for, to check out your skills, but it didn't, whether she had the skills or not, she still got to go up. So. Well, just to be clear, I don't know what company she was with. The company that I was with didn't test me at all because I wasn't being guided. Um, So I don't, I I went over there and watched some people do it. And the people that I watched on the skills check were, were quite confident. So I don't know what her skills check was like, but I would think that um, that's definitely one of the things I want to talk about is that they should be failed. People should actually be failed. And I think there's so much pressure financially and culturally to just say yes to the client that it puts other people at risk. And I think, you know, we've seen that in lines on Everest and we've seen that I've personally seen that on, in a line of climbers on Ama de Blom, somebody should have said no to them. And that's, that's one of the lessons I, I take from this is that there should be a, 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 a you know, a no refunds, no, you don't have the skills to be here. Um, or, a, you know, a mandatory resume check of some kind, you know, yeah, you've, you've climbed, you know, uh, avalanche golds on Shasta, but that's just walking. What have you done to actually support yourself in the backcountry? Have you ever um, ascended a rope before? Have you ever placed a piece of gear yourself? Have you ever used an ice axe or crampons yourself? You know, it, that, that kind of skills check is severely lacking. And I think that's a huge part of the danger we were in. And one of the reasons that I've, you know, this, this was a test for me to see if I should do an 8,000 meter peak and Everest has crossed my mind. And I think it's a hundred percent no for me because of the people, not because of the mountain, not because of the risks of avalanche or the, the Kumbu icefall technical, it's the people. I think the people make it dangerous and I'm you know, I'm sort of disappointed that I won't get a chance to do that in my life um, unless something drastic changes in terms of the way they manage the clients. But I was... Like you're saying, unless there's yeah. parameters, like, you know, like a skills check or resume check. Yeah. And I... Which would weed out maybe a lot of, maybe half of the folks that are climbing Everest. But I think the resume check is, I don't know. you know, is, is more of a wallet biopsy than a than an actual resume check. Mm. Right yeah. now it is, sounds yeah. like. So... um in the end, I, I I ended up coming all the way back down to to camp and spent a couple of days. Um, a lot of people flew out directly from camp. It was I was shocked at the helicopter usage. They're like taxi cabs in the region. If you have enough money, it's a three thousand dollar taxi ride back to Kathmandu. Um, and uh, I decided that that was not the way I was going to go. A, I couldn't afford that, and B, um, I, it, it defeats the purpose. I mean, this this trip was an experience to be in the mountains to be, you know, immersed in a culture, immersed in a place and a helicopter ride takes that away a hundred percent. And I know that some of the people that I'm describing flew out um, because they, uh, some people use their insurance. They said they were sick. Um, You know, they were perfectly capable of walking. They just didn't want to. So they used their, uh, their evacuation insurance and called it in and said, fly me out. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. (laughs) And one of the things that they have to do after that is they have to check into the hospital. They have to at least go to the emergency room after they use their insurance to fly out. Um, So I had one one lady who was not part of this group, but she described to me her experience and said, well, yeah, it's you know, it's it saves me two days of trekking, but I have to spend an afternoon in an ER. You know, like that was the trade-off in their mind was, oh, I gotta, I gotta go to the ER after this to use my insurance, but it's only an afternoon as opposed to two days of trekking. Well, the integrity. Where's the integrity? I, 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 as an emergency physician, I was horrified that people would use the services and the emergency room that way, um, but also not surprised because I've, I've seen it. You know, in the United States, I was, I was but just then shocked to see it. People that need that service can't use it because there's somebody else sitting there. And the waiting room and what if there's a, a real emergency that, I mean, that just makes me really sad. It, it is. It, it's a horrifying abuse. I agree. And um, I, I witnessed it 
uh, at least with one person who basically just said they were done and they wanted a faster way out of there. So it was, I don't know, I couldn't do it. I know I couldn't do it. I would, my, my honor system is uh, above, above that. So what are some of the things that you learned that you want to share with the listeners? Then? Um, so one of the things I learned, and I'm, I'm very sad to mention this on your podcast, because I know that Rocky Talkie is a big sponsor of yours, but GMRS, GMRS radios are not uh, in service in Nepal. I wish I'd brought my, uh, my little Baofeng. I could have programmed it to the channels that they were using. Um, my base camp manager actually gave me a radio, so I had one with me for a lot of it, but not for the, uh, the rescue portion. I don't, that was a mistake that I made. I wished I'd had the radio in a, in a pocket that was accessible. I did not. I left it back. Um, and then I, safety in numbers. Um, you know, I always felt climbing like, hey, you know, I, I, there's other people doing this. It must be okay. But that's a classic trap. Um, and I think I would have been safer if I had decided to go on my own um, on that day that the weather was okay, but we were waiting for the other clients to come up. I probably would have been safer to just do it on my own. I still would have been able to, wouldn't have been able to summit because the avalanche still would have been there and still would have wiped out the ropes. Um, but I probably would have been up in four hours and down in two instead of down in, you know, seven. Um, but you wouldn't have known that the weather was going to be good enough to go. Right? Um, I had a pretty good weather app. Um, I was using two, two weather apps. When I had uh, service, I would use um, mountainforecast.com. I found them to be very good. And then uh, the Garmin InReach, you can actually download weather directly to your InReach. And that was um, pretty accurate as well. Um, but, you know, it, it's always tough. You're like, well, what, what, is a, what does a 35% chance of snow really mean? Does that mean I'm going to get dumped on? Or does that right. mean it's, it's going to snow for two hours? <laughs> so, um, and then lastly, I, uh, you know, trust your instincts. I, I don't mind, I didn't mind going solo, totally. um, but I saw so many red flags and I, in the back of my mind, I recognized all of them and I even verbalized them to other people, but I still chose to ignore them. Um, that's interesting. You know, and I, I, I knew, I knew that these other clients were going to cause problems for us. I just didn't know how badly they were going to cause problems for us. Um, mm -hmm. I had an experience once as a guide where I, I criticized somebody and, you know, I, I told them, you know, what you're doing is, is questionable or unsafe. And I kind of got yelled at by one of my bosses, like, don't ever do that. And I came up with my own mantra of the only time I ever tell somebody or correct somebody about their behavior is if I think they're going to die right now, like they're not tied in and they're about to start a climb or they're about to repel and their belay device isn't hooked in correctly, I will stop them. If it's just a bad habit or if it's a questionable, you know, like, ah, that's not the way I would do it. I don't say anything. And so I use that mantra of like, that's not the way I would do it. Oh my goodness. I'm, I would not guide that lady. That That's crazy. She doesn't have the skills. And so I kept my mouth shut and um, hmm. maybe, maybe I should have said something. I don't know. Um, I think, I think the clients literally put other people's lives at risk, including my own, you know, sitting four hours on that windy Ridge. I was just lucky that I was a little bit warmer than Bart was, you know, um, and didn't get hypothermic and it could have been me. And I could have been stuck up there alone with, you know, I didn't even have a Sherpa who was, who was going to come back for me if I didn't show up. Um, and so I, you know, if you see something, say something, I know it's a bit of a, a cliche lately, but, um, maybe it would have been worth saying, but it's something. true, you know, pulled, pulled somebody yeah. aside as gently as possible and, and literally say, I don't think you're ready for this. You know, I've been watching you for two days, climb next to me and you're too slow. You're, this is dangerous for you. I think you should really think about finding another mountain and getting some more training, not saying no. Or another way to frame it too is, do you think that you're ready for this? That's that way. It's not so much of an attack. Like, yeah, hey, I don't know if you're ready for this because they might think that they are. They they. It sounds like she has no, she probably had no idea what she was getting herself into. You know, so really having her sit down and and reflect on, hey, do you think that you're ready for this? Do you know what the risks are here? Do you know what? the next moves are here where the progression of climbing this mountain is. And then she 
would probably not be able to answer and come up with her own idea. No, it would, it would be really know. tough because, you know, she could turn around and say, well, my guide says I'll be fine, you know. Um, and, and, right. and there's a, right. <laughs> there's a thousand dollar summit bonus coming to the guide's way if he gets her up there. And so if you, if you said to them, Hey, is yeah. that true? Is there a thousand dollar bonus for a guide if they can get their client to the summit? That's yeah. true. Um, oh my gosh. Uh, Bart's guide wanted the summit bonus and Bart said, absolutely not. I didn't stand on the summit. And he's like, but I got you up and down safely. And he's like, no, you abandoned me. Absolutely not. I'm not paying the summit bonus. Um, wow. I feel like that should be illegal. It's a conflict of interest for sure. Well, also you're putting, you're prioritizing money over people's safety. I mean, everybody wants a thousand dollar bonus. I want a thousand dollar bonus. And, uh, and it, but if if you're if you all you can see is the money bag sitting on top of the summit, then you're not seeing you're blinded to everything else. You have tunnel vision. Wow, that is really terrifying. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, I, that. I was I didn't know that either because I I didn't sign up for that you know that method of of climbing. I just had the services up to base camp, and when I heard about this, I was like, that's that's just such a conflict of interest. How is it possible? to be reasonable about the safety when you have not just summit fever, you have bonus fever. Yeah. Money fever. And, and, and I have no idea. I've never been to Nepal, but I do know that it's, you know, it's a poorer country, right? I mean, and so these folks are not as well off, say, as Americans. Is that a true statement I, or is that pretty no say. i mean it's 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 beyond what you think it is it's orders of magnitude difference so i mean you know your, your average right. worker who is at say at a mcdonald's making 16 dollars an hour in california that would be i don't probably 10 times the daily wage of somebody in nepal so you know we're talking so a thousand dollars is a lot of money yes. of money that's a huge motivator yes i mean we're talking about a country where some people make a thousand dollars a year. So a thousand dollars for a summit is, is a mind boggling amount of money. Um, and I know I, I, I totally appreciate how climbers climbing have built hospitals in the region have brought tourism dollars. Um, the wealthiest population in Nepal, according to something I had, had perused on my pre-travel planning, um, is the, the town of uh, Namche Bazaar because so many tourists come through and there's so many hotels and well-paid workers in that region. We're talking about an area that's maybe two square miles um, is the wealthiest region in the country because of tourism. And so I, I see tourism as an economy and I think that that's a wonderful thing to you know bring, bring sure. economic lever to to the people um but sometimes that lever is used inappropriately and can break things and I, this was definitely a case where you know summit fever and summit bonus um you know a thousand dollars to get somebody who literally doesn't know how to repel doesn't know how to walk across talus field in boots um that's just dangerous for everybody else on the mountain and that thousand dollars wasn't yeah. worth you know rescuing bart wasn't worth you know, the hypothermia he experienced. And I know, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to, to brag. I'm sure somebody else would have gone up to help him, but what if there was no other client who was a solo capable climber and it was just guided clients on a, a terrible, you know, with no skills, who's going to go up and get him? Nobody, you know, there was nobody around for him. Um, and so, you know, it, it, the motivations are a little backwards. The training is lacking for the clients for sure. And yeah. I think this is something to say more broadly about climbers. There's, I don't know, the, the lack of mentorship um, and sort of the, like the gym mentality of like, I've been climbing, I've been to the gym. And then you get out and somebody hands you uh, a rack of brassies and says, okay, now survive with this rack of brassies. You'd be like, what are these things? What do they do? <laughs> um, and so people think they understand the sport and understand the skills. Um, 
only to find out they know nothing. And I still feel that way. You know, I still feel like I'm learning more and more and more. And I've taken some self-rescue courses and people teach me tricks. And, you know, there's guides out there that can uh, tie knots I never heard of. And I'm like, wow, that's actually useful. That's not just a cool party trick. That's a, that's a useful skill. I've never even seen that. Um, you know, I've learning how to uh, repel with uh, a munter, just a munter or a carabiner brake repel. You know, these are things that people don't know anymore. Um, and if they are used to climbing with a grigri, they have no idea how to repel. They have no idea how to get off of a... Of, but when yeah. you lose your yeah. grigri... You're done. Then, or it's iced over, then you're going to need to know, you're, you're going to need to have backups, which is repelling off the motor, yeah. right? So... And so I think that... The... Yeah, I think that you're right. Like being a, a well-rounded climber, if you're, if you're a gym climber, that's fine. But being, you know know your scope of experience and you can't go from gym to go lead five, seven plus on traditional gear. I mean, you have to like, there's, there's steps in between, you know? And so I think that's what you're saying. And I appreciate that. And it's not, it's not a one weekend course. It's years of learning, you know, how to do this. You have to be a lifelong learner. Yes. And so I, you know, I, yes. somebody asked me once, there's like, oh, how do you learn how to place trad gear? I'm like, go aid climb. Learn how to aid climb, place literally a thousand pieces in a five-day climb, and then you will trust your gear and you will understand, um, you know, or follow that and take out a thousand pieces on a five-day climb and learn what it looks like, you know, what's a good piece of gear, what's not a good piece of gear, and, and you just, it takes time. And I think people are... That's how I learned to trad gear was my ex-boyfriend, who's still a super, super good friend of mine. He lives in Alta, Wyoming. Hi, Brandon. He probably doesn't <laughs> listen to this podcast, but if he does, hey. Hi, Brandon. Um, he um, he taught me how to trad climb. He taught, me, he, taught, he taught me how to climb, actually. And the first three years that I was climbing behind Brandon, um, he never let me lead. He's like, nope, we, know we, only, we only climbed um, on gear. And I'm like, hey, can I lead you? I think I'm ready. He's like, nope, nope, nope. And he just made me study all the pieces that he would place and he'd make me clean every piece that he placed. And then after three years of cleaning up his gear, then he's like, okay, I think you're ready. Let's go to City of Rocks. And I think that's the classic mentorship. That was amazing. Classic mentorship. Yes. I'm so grateful for it because when I actually went to do my first lead, I was terrified. But I also felt like I had seen enough gear placements where I felt somewhat somewhat confident you know your first lead you're always like get the elvis foot you're, uh, you know but um thanks to him he, he i think he gave me really great mentorship oh i'm i'm working on that with my sons I, my older son is uh extremely strong he's he's finally surpassing me um but he doesn't know how to clip you know that sort of that smooth fluid like stick your middle finger in and twist the rope in stick your middle finger in and twist the rope in grab it put your thumb in flip the rope in and uh, he's like, I got it, dad. I got it, dad. And then he's like, you know, he's on a 5.11 and he's like got the Elvis foot and he's like fumbling a clip. And I'm like, oh God, <laughs> you're not ready yet. Do it, go make it. <laughs> so we're not even, to, we're Proud not even dad. to gear yet. We're still, we're still working on our sport clips. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Is there anything uh, that you want to leave, leave the listeners with? If you have one last final thing you want to end with. Get out there, enjoy yourself. Go to Nepal because it's a gorgeous place, even if you're not a climber. Um, the people are just lovely human beings. Everybody I met was just the nicest. You know, the taxi driver that I'm like, you're really going to drive me around all day? He waited for me at everything, you know, every little tourist spot. It was just wonderful people. Go. It's a gorgeous spot. And then climbing-wise, um, go get guided. Go get private guided. Tell them you want to learn how to place gear. You want to learn how to escape a belay. You want to learn uh, how to repel with a munter and a grigri and do a two rope repel with a grigri. How, do how does that work? Uh, how, how could I possibly make that happen? Um, learn all these tricks so that when you go into the, the Alpine, you're much safer than you were before and you understand the systems. You're not just blindly climbing and you have no you have no bag of tricks to rely on you know you you might be able to get up and down no problem but if something goes wrong you have no backups you have no other uh skills to escape and i think learning those tricks before you go to someplace dangerous 
Um, you know, the sport crag with a thousand people is not nearly as dangerous as even climbing in the Eastern Sierra where you're, there's no other parties around and it's a, it's only a five, seven, but you're hosed if your rope gets stuck. You gotta figure it out. Learn those skills before you go and get yourself hurt or hurt somebody else. Thanks so much to Michael for sharing his story. And thank you for listening to my podcast. If you learned something from this episode or really any of the Sharpen episodes, please tell a friend or family member. Spread the word about my podcast. Help me get these stories out anywhere outdoor communities so we can all minimize future outdoor accidents. And don't forget, like and subscribe to the Sharp End podcast channel on YouTube. Thank you again so much to Rocky Talkies for sponsoring this podcast. And thank you to the American Alpine Club for believing in my podcast mission. The American Alpine Club podcast is your guide to the climbing community, exploring the many ways we define climbing and the ways that climbing defines us. In recent episodes, the AAC podcast interviewed Tom Randall about why training might be for you, even if chasing grades isn't your style. They also teamed up with Rocky Talkie to give search and rescue teams some love and got to share the behind the scenes details about the decision making, risk analysis, and emotional toll of three tough and inspiring rescues performed by volunteer search and rescue teams. You can find episodes like this and more by finding the American Alpine Club podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcast. Subscribe today. And as always, remember, play hard and be smart.